0: Well, good morning, friends. At last, it's time to turn back to the next big section of John's Gospel. So I wonder if you would turn with me to John chapter 7, page 892, I think, in the Church Bibles. And this morning, we'll read verses 1 to 13. Once you've found it, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's help. Some put their trust in princes and some in horses. But we will trust in the Lord our God. Lord God, please help us to trust you, to see your son, and to follow his ways with joy. Amen. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, that is after his miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and his scandalous claim in chapter 6 that if we want to live, we need a more miraculous feeding still, that his flesh and blood is the only thing that can give life to human beings. After that scandalous claim, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. Because the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brother's. Believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were seeking him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no, He's deceiving the people. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Well, it's been a few months since our last visit to John's gospel. So this morning, we've got a good chance to take stock of how things are going. Jesus has said and done some truly wonderful things. John has told us some incredible things about him But at this point in the narrative, how is brand Jesus getting on? For a while, we saw him racking up the subscriber count. His first visit to Jerusalem was greeted with huge enthusiasm. Chapter 2, verse 23, many believed in him when they saw his signs. And yet Jesus somehow didn't entrust himself to them. He knew all people, and he saw something in their hearts, their belief, that wasn't right, wasn't sincere. By the next trip to Jerusalem, chapter 5, the Jewish leaders had seen the implications of his works and his claims. Jesus healed a man beside a pool one Sabbath day, and his response to their outrage was that God never stops working, not even on the Sabbath, and so neither does he. And their response was to decide then and there to kill him. That's the Jewish elites then, the sophisticated city people, the influencers. What about out in the sticks in Galilee? Well, once again, Jesus has been attracting enormous interest, and there it seemed a lot more positive. Jesus Claims to fulfill all of Israel's history. He feeds them like God fed Israel in the wilderness. And the people want to take him away and force him to be their king, remember? But once again, Jesus won't have it. He vanishes because they want an earthly king who will fill their stomachs. One who they can control, who meets their earthly needs. And when he tells them what he's really come to do in chapter 6, it scandalizes people. You must feed on my very flesh, he said. It's your souls that are starving, not just your bodies. And unless you get my blood on your hands, take advantage of my death, nothing can save you. But all that led to, by the end of chapter 6, was a hemorrhage of disciples more and more of them taking offense and slipping away so that by verse 66, it seems like all that's left are 12 followers coming to terms with overwhelming disappointment in Jesus Christ. And according to him, even one of them is a snake in the grass, a betrayer. The Jesus brand is not performing well, is it? Well, we've had a few weeks here now in Scotland where the Jesus brand has been in the news. And sometimes I've been getting messages from Christians who are hugely excited. Someone at last has stood up and told the truth. There's a Christian standing publicly in the most unlikely place. But some of you these last few weeks have been getting in touch because you found it all really hard. Why, if a Christian has to be in the news does it always have to be like this? How will we ever win people over if we're always talking about stuff that is so unappealing to our culture? Why are we trying to force things on them, shove things down their throats? Why can't we show them good things about Jesus, win the world through that? And if the Jesus brand is so toxic today, well, how can I find a way to talk about him that comes off better. He seems to be for everything that even my own children are starting to recoil from. So how do I talk about a Jesus they'll want him to be? Well, John is writing this book to an audience, wrestling with all those same problems to hugely sophisticated Greek-speaking readers who love God's and who probably have been finding themselves drawn magnetically to Jesus. But it is such a struggle in their world to persuade people that the Christ is this man. The Jesus brand is very hard to swallow. And chapters... Seven to ten of this book are where John begins to show his readers that the confusion and the ambivalence and the outright hostility that people have to Jesus in their day is nothing new. People have always had to face it. It's not because they're holding out Jesus in the wrong way. It's because they live in a world where all of us are desperate to fit in. And Jesus never, ever has. This big chunk of the book is really hard to break up because it's all dominated by one massive debate between Jesus and the Jewish elite. Again and again, they'll come back to the same issue, where Jesus is from, or more precisely, who Jesus is from. Who he truly is in eternity If we accept his answer to that, then everything about Jesus makes sense. If we reject it, we will hate him. And what we'll see over this unit is that more and more fiercely, Jesus' own, his Jewish brothers reject it until everything comes to a head when he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead and his own fate is sealed in the most brave and heroic way possible but it's been like this from the very beginning. And strangely, I think John's intention here is to firmly reassure his audience, these sophisticated believers and seekers, Jesus' way is okay. It's nothing to be ashamed of. More than that, Jesus' way is deeply, deeply good. But if he is truly God from God, our eternal Lord, then Christianity has to be done his way. First then, in verses one to nine, we're told what I hope all of us who are committed to him already have come to terms with by now. But somehow, again and again, it catches us by surprise, doesn't it? His way is not what we want to hear. John has skipped over about six months of Jesus' life between the Passover in chapter 6 and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles where this next big chunk is going to be set. And it's that little window of time he skipped where almost all the action of the other Gospels takes place. All John tells us is that those six months were spent wandering around in Galilee because up in Judea where Israel's movers and shakers do their stuff, The leaders are looking to kill him. It's a reminder of what happened, the decision they took back in chapter 5, the last time he showed his face near the temple. Now, it'd be hard, I think, to read those other Gospels and think that during that time, Jesus was spending his life in hiding. But to his younger brothers, verse 4, that's exactly what he's been doing. They see him skulking around in Galilee, unimpressive Galilee, Steadily bleeding support. And as far as we can tell from those other gospels, he was making life pretty embarrassing for them, to his family, to the point where they think he's going out of his mind. If all you're going to do is preach to people in a place like Galilee, you might as well, they think, be working away in secret. What's the point of this? What he needs now is to stem the flood of followers. And that will take a career-changing move. Leave backwards little Galilee. Forget all this repent-for-the-kingdom-is-at-hand business that he's doing down there. And head up to the big city to give the people what they want. Right now, the biggest crowds of his career are getting ready for the biggest feast in the Jewish calendar. Tabernacles where... They celebrate the way God provided miraculously for them in the wilderness. It's the feast you celebrate when the harvest is done, it's in the barns, your work is over, and everyone can be with family and let their hair down and praise God for another year of kindness. So you see what that means for his brothers? Jesus, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fix the brand, to show your disciples the works you're doing, verse 3, before there is nobody left. Right now, all you're giving this family is a massive headache, so it's time to put up or shut up. If you want to be known, then show yourself to the world. Dazzle the crowds, promote yourself, generate some clicks. And in worldly terms, that is good advice, isn't it? Who doesn't like the Jesus who works miracles. Isn't that what we wish we could have shown the world last week when people were asking all those awkward questions about Kate Forbes and what she believes? Yes, but look at all the good stuff that Jesus does. There's one problem, though, with the brother's advice. It all rests on the massive assumption that what Jesus cares about is all the likes and subscribes that what he most wants is to get himself some followers if you seek to be known. But what if he isn't here to promote himself at all? What if it's another agenda completely that makes Jesus' heart beat? You see, it is good, worldly advice, but that is exactly the problem. It's worldly. The brothers are exactly the same as The rest of the crowds in Galilee, where they come from, they want a king who will dance to their tune, who wants the sorts of things they want, gives them what they need. The brothers want a genie, not a lord. Which explains the extraordinary surprise in verse 5, isn't it? Look at that. Saying all of this shows that not even his brothers believed in him the ones who were most his own in all the world, who'd spent their whole lives up close to him, hearing the stories of how he was born, living with this big brother who, as long as they'd known him, had never told a lie, never been unkind to them, never saw anything but their goods, and not even they believe in him. How on earth does that make sense? Obviously, they do believe in his miracles. They were there for the very first one at the wedding, which so few other people saw. They want him to go and show off those miracles to everyone. But here's the thing there's nobody Jesus ever met in this gospel who disputed his miracles. Everyone believes in those. The thing they won't believe is what those miracles mean. They were the proof of the big central dispute in this section, that he is the son sent eternally from the father. He is God of God. He's not a genie in a lamp. He's not an earthly human king. He is Lord. And a God of God, Lord of Lords kind of savior does not dance to our tune only he can call the shots when it comes to what Christianity looks like. And it may not always look the way we want it to look, because his way is not fundamentally self-serving, self-promoting. His way is father-serving, father-promoting. And so verse six, he has a time, a time that He's been counting us down to right the way through this book. Remember how often he's spoken of his hour. And that time tells us that he is constrained by a much more loving agenda than these brothers realize. He has chosen to narrow his whole life down to one road, one path leading to the cross where he will suffer as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But that agenda of his father's, it narrows his freedom down in a way that his brothers will never understand. For them, it's always the right time. They can do as they please. For Jesus, his life is always for the sake of others, for the sake of that agenda. He has given up his freedom for ours. But notice the stinging cost of that, verse 7. It's very costly. Jesus will not dance to the world's tune. He will not be the kind of Jesus we desperately want him to be, who always says that everything is fine, always a good. Instead, his path means that in love, he has to expose our sin shed light on those dark, crawling things in our hearts. Not because he's nasty or he's judgmental, but because it's our only hope that in shining his truth and his light on our sin, we might see it and come towards him. And the cost of living like that is terrible. The cost is that the world hates him because the true Jesus, the radically good Jesus, will always be so uncomfortably out of step with whatever it is that our culture prizes. Most of us, when we're shown our sin, we go off like a rocket, don't we? We hate it. We hate people pointing out what's wrong with the things that we love. And that's what the world is like. We know it because enough of that world still seeps into our hearts. So what does it mean then if the world can't hate Jesus brothers. What a strange criticism that is to make. It means that his own brothers, even here as they're trying to promote the Jesus brand, don't really know him. His own brothers belong to that world and not to him. The world is John's phrase, remember, for human culture set against its savior and against his rule. Sure, they believe in a Jesus. They want others to believe in their Jesus. They want to promote him, but they've got the kind of Christianity that almost all of us desperately wish we could have, at least some of the time. A kind of Jesus who hurts no one, offends no one. That's the Jesus they want to promote the one who does the stuff the crowds love. Just like so many of us today, we want a Jesus who fits with the prevailing culture, whose brand is a little less tainted, one who won't make our kids feel like they stick out. It's so painful, isn't it, to see our kids constantly sticking out. One who won't make people uncomfortable when they come to church and they see three men up here serving communion isn't that weird? I heard a photographer this week saying that all her clients are used to looking at reality through an Instagram filter. It's the only way they see other people. So that when these beautiful women that she photographs comes to look at the real picture on the back of her camera, almost always they say, I look so ugly there. They don't want to recognize themselves. But what if we only ever showed the world Jesus through an Instagram filter so that he looked just how we wanted him to look? So many churches are trying to do exactly that, aren't they? Maybe we do, or we want to sometimes. But if we won people to that Jesus, would they even recognize the real one if they ever came into contact with him? Maybe we're dreading those friends who are going to ask us about the answers Kate Forbes has given, force us to defend all our unattractive stuff all over again. And we found ourselves thinking, if only I could explain this in a way that sounded nicer. If only I could read the book that would make me sound more reasonable. Give me the right answers. Let me show them Jesus through the right filter. If only public Christians could be a bit more appealing not constantly getting trapped in conversations about sex and gender and marriage, then maybe my sophisticated friends would at least understand. Give me a hearing. Well, they won't. Because however real our flaws, and they are real, fundamentally the problem isn't us. It's him. I think John is saying to his readers, I know you desperately want a middle road where you can love Jesus and the clever world you come from will still love you, but it isn't there. It never was there. They hated him. That isn't a counsel of despair. It's actually hugely reassuring once we come to terms with it. There are plenty of us who live in fear that one day our kids will walk away from Jesus we see them already, don't we, trying to keep a foot in both worlds, desperately looking for a Jesus. They can show their friends through the filter. There are those of us with kids who've already walked away from the real deal, and it breaks our heart, and maybe we blame ourselves for it terribly. We didn't make him attractive enough, attractive as we know he is. It was our fault. Think what this means, though, that Jesus own belong to the world and not to him. It's not as if Jesus did anything wrong in how he loved his brothers. He never lost his temper inappropriately with them. He never failed to tell them the whole truth in the most persuasive and loving ways. He commended the gospel perfectly to them for 33 years. What does it mean that right now Even they are part of this angry, exposed, unbelieving world. Well, it means that the reality Jesus has been so clear about in this book, how cold and dead and lost our human hearts are, that reality is utterly universal. Even the most privileged insiders who've grown up around Jesus Need something as drastic as what everyone's been rejecting. Even they, even we, need to feed on his flesh and blood and have our hearts changed. They might recoil from that stuff, but it's got to be his way. The time for them to go up to the temple where God is found is always right. It's always the right time to repent and ask God to provide his mercy, every one of us truly does need his provision for our hearts. So it's always the right time to come close. But as for Jesus, his life, it has to be done his way. You see, he will go to the feast. He will speak openly. In fact, the crowds in verse 26, they're going to be shocked at how openly he does speak. So, The issue here is not that Jesus fears an early death. He can't go because of that. He's not yet ready to die. That's not the issue. Nobody takes his life from him, he'll tell us. He lays his life down when he chooses to. The issue is whose tune he dances to. He will go his way, his father's way, but not his brother's way. His way is not what we always want to hear. But the last couple of verses drive something home that perhaps we're needing to hear right now. His way is brave and beautiful and full of love. We might not always like it. We might wish for a Jesus who fits in better with our world. But the Jesus we have is so much more wonderful than that. In fact, there is nothing at all in him that we need to be ashamed of. What does Jesus find waiting for him when he does get to Jerusalem, the biggest feast of the Jewish calendar? And John has already presented him as the one who fulfills all of Israel's feasts and festivals. We're going to see him offer to them the very thing that kept Israel alive during those days in their tabernacles in the wilderness. He'll offer them living water, and a light to lead them through the wilderness. So he is the one whose amazing provision, this whole joyful feast is about celebrating. This will be a bit like us all sitting down around our Christmas dinner, only for the real Mary and Joseph to walk through the door carrying baby Jesus. That's what's happening here. Here is the one it's all about. And what does he find? Well, not throngs of pilgrims with joy on their face as they see him, no. He finds exactly what he found in his brothers. But writ large, across all of Israel, his own belong to the world. There are the Jewish leaders looking for him in verse 11, looking for him, we were told in verse 1, because they want to kill him. And then there are the Jewish people down the middle, grumbling. You couldn't make it up. It's how the whole story they're meant to be celebrating right now started with people grumbling that God wouldn't provide what they truly needed. Well, here is God's wonderful provision. Come to offer them water from the wells of salvation. And some think he's a good man. Others think this man is lying About who God the Father is. He's a deceiver. But what do they all have in common? Verse 13, they are terrified. When it comes to the real Jesus, everyone is terrified of saying what they actually think. It's them who won't speak openly, not him, because they fear the opinions of other people, the Jewish leaders more than they care for the truth. They need other people to like what they think and not hate them for it. Do you see? It's exactly the same issue as it was for the brothers, but that plays out inside every single human heart, just as it does today. It's no easier for us now, is it? It's no easier to say, well, I think Jesus is good, actually. I don't think he's intolerant or unloving. In fact, I reckon if only you got to know him, you'd think his way was beautiful. It's no easier now. It's so helpful to see though what is really going on. This is not a rational objection to who Jesus is. We are angry because he tells us the truth and we're scared about what other people will think. That's why our culture rejects him, anger and fear. That's all it is. Well, that's what Jesus finds. And that's what Jesus knows he will find. So I think what a deeply brave and lonely and loving thing it was that he willingly walks right into it. Yes, he will go. And yes, he will indeed show himself to the world, but only his way. Do you notice how three times they talk about going up to the feast? That's Usual language, you go up to Zion, but it's a phrase that John uses very specifically in this book to talk about the moment that will loom larger and larger from now on when Jesus goes up to his Father through being lifted up on a cross. If we want to see who Jesus truly is, if we want him to show himself to the world, he will only show us that way He is the one sent from the Father's heart to die for the world in love. That's who he is. And that is what he thinks is glorious and worth showing off. It's beautiful, isn't it? There is a time coming for Jesus. Look how carefully he answered his brothers earlier on. My time has not yet fully come, but it will come. I will not go to this feast, but there will be a feast for me. When Jesus' time comes, it won't be the joy of tabernacles, of harvest and celebration, because Jesus can't celebrate his harvest until he's borne the pain of working for that harvest on the cross. And so his time will be the sweat and sacrifice of Passover, that is his feast. That will be the festival where the world sees who he truly is right out in the open. Only when the good shepherd has gathered all of his lambs into the barn and gone up to his father with his work done, only then will he be able to feast. And so Jesus goes up his way in private, no glory This is the feast where everyone else is partying and singing and making merry, cooking out in their tents, all gathered around together around the temple. A huge, beautiful family affair. Jesus spends it isolated, even from his flesh and blood, lonely. There's no mention of his disciples for the rest of this unit. This is the last time in John's gospel that Jesus sees his home, From now on, all the action will take place around the temple at the very center of Jewish life and hope where the Lamb of God prepares to make his sacrifice for a world that hates him, his way. Maybe sometimes we wish we had a king who would submit to us, be what we want him to be, a king who would court the world's praise, and bow to our culture's agenda. Well, he won't do that, friends. He is Lord of Lords. But he does know how to provide for his people. And his way is braver and more beautiful and more full of love than anything our world could ever dream up. So let's not be afraid of submitting unashamedly to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that your way truly is wonderful. Your lack of self-seeking, your beautiful honesty about right and wrong, your deep, generous courage, your willingness to lay your life down to rescue us from the world how we need it. So we pray, forgive us the countless ways that we want to make you fit into our agenda for the times where tempted to present those we love with a doctored Christ. And Lord, in your great mercy, have pity on them, we pray, Let our friends and our loved ones see the real Lord while there's time. And let them love all that is truly in you. For we ask it pleading your own goodness and kindness and grace. Amen.